Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. And I'm Charlie Dean Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who just dreams constantly about science. This episode is about cultural appropriation. We're going to be speaking with our very special guest, Jamie Goh, who is a scholar in critical race studies. She's written a dissertation about steampunk and whiteness. And she's also an associate editor at Tachyon Publications, which is a fantastic small press, and you should be reading all their books all the time. And we're going to be talking with her about what does it mean to appropriate another culture? How does that work? How does it affect science fiction? How is it sort of built into our everyday experience of life, but also how we consume media? So we won't exactly solve the problem of cultural appropriation in this episode, (laughs) but we are going to make an effort to talk about some solutions that you can take home and put in your pocket and hopefully put into practice. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We're super excited to have you. And since you are basically an expert in cultural (laughs) appropriation, you've been, you know, dominant culture has deemed you an expert in cultural appropriation. Can you give us like a quick and dirty explanation or even like a long and clean explanation (laughs) of what cultural appropriation is? I can give you long and dirty. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So in order to first talk about what what cultural appropriation is, I think first we need to talk about what we mean when we talk about culture. Because usually when I see this discourse around what cultural appropriation is, it's always centered around like things and stuff and like items artifacts, images, iconography. And these tend to be seen as like these free-floating things that can signify whatever a person wants to do, particularly, you know, people who are artists because like we are little cultural magpies picking things up to like use in our own art. And it's like, well, you know, no one claims ownership over them. Can you give an example of something that you're thinking of when you say, like, it's an icon that an artist is taking? Or The easiest thing would be, like, Pocahontas, the sexy Native American costumes. <laughs> yes. Right? Like, everyone says, like, well, it's just a piece of cloth at the end. Well, it's just a costume. It's just, it's just a thing, right? Whereas, like, to people who are from those cultures, we're like, no, these, these are representations of our culture. And this is how we are dehumanized through these representations. But because all this discourse is wrapped up around, like, this commodification of these things, like, that's, in the end, like, we start to think about this is what culture is is. So in order to think through why cultural appropriation is such a fraught issue for a lot of us and why some of us are so dismissive of it, we have to think about like what culture is. So rather than just thinking about it as like items or in terms of like legal terms, we can think about it as like these are icons, ephemera, performances, rituals, what have you, that don't just represent a culture and therefore can be like, you know, 
taken and re-referenced in another way, but also as ways that a culture expresses its identity. And so that brings up a different discourse of, well, culture is meant to be shared, which is another way people kind of like deflect the whole culture. I'm not cultural appropriating. I'm just appreciating. Oh, I'm sharing. I'm just sharing in another, another person's culture. It's like it's shared among members of the community to show that they are members of this community, that this is what their alignment is, that this is where they belong to. And when you take these forms away and commodify them, then that's how you dehumanize them. And that's, you essentially say like this thing that you use to express your identity, to express like your, your community's philosophy is like, is meaningless. It can be bought and sold. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean when I say culture, and that's, that's what gets caught up in the whole debate surrounding cultural appropriation. And there's a really, really good definition. So, so this is the quick and dirty. The quick and dirty <laughs> is, I'm going to like steal a quote that I've been like quoting since forever. It's from a book called Unthinking Eurocentrism by um, Ella Shohat and Robert Stamm. It was published in like 1993. And in it, they have a definition that they actually took from a woman who's a dancer, or she studies dance, called Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet. And she says that cultural appropriation separates forms from its performers. It brings those, it turns those forms into influences. It brings those influences to the center. It leaves the living sources of these influences on the margins. And then it pats itself on the back for being so cosmopolitan. <laughs> <laughs> so these are like these all these five things kind of like are the different processes that come together in cultural appropriation. And that's why everyone everyone usually just focuses on like one or two of the other and, and kind of like ignores other elements. And so no one gets a full picture that way. But like if you think about like it separates forms from its performance being like, you know, where does this thing originate from? This iconography, this ritual, this this way of doing things this way of portraying things you take that away or you don't even necessarily take that away you just like that's that looks really cool and you lift it up and say like this influenced me in what i'm doing and then you take whatever it is that you're taking whether it's an artifact and you bring it with you to the center to whatever platform you want and whatever the origin source is whatever like they don't matter anymore and you didn't bring them with you to the platform that you're now bringing it to. And then, like, you get all the social capital, all the financial profit for, you know, being, for bringing this, this art form to life. The example that sticks out to me most is uh, Disney's Tangled. Oh. Right, the thing with the floating lanterns, right? Because that is actually a living practice that's still being done in several Asian countries. But then it gets taken up and it, it's plonked into this incredibly European-esque kind of setting with no head nod whatsoever to where it comes from. And it looks beautiful. Everyone loves that scene. I love that scene. But at the same time, like coming from a place where I know that it's this is practiced elsewhere, I look and it's like, this looks so beautiful, but it's good enough to be taken from the people, but the people aren't good enough to go with it, basically, is what yeah. is what that action says. Right. Or even like Disney trying to like trademark Day of the Dead, oh. like the original <laughs> thing. Of, yeah. Oh, so. with Coco, yeah. No, that was a mistake. Oh my God. So it sounds like there's a several 
pieces of this process of cultural appropriation. One is that so culture goes from being performance or lived experience to being a thing or a commodity, Mm -hmm. something that can actually be physically moved or a set of moves that can be like patented almost like dance moves or something. And then taken away from the original context and performance and put into a different cultural context. And then the final stage is in the new context, somebody basically sells it or turns it into something they can sell. Yes. So commodification is a big part of it, but also it seems like one of the things that you're saying is that cultural appropriation kind of it changes what culture is. Like culture goes right. from being a performance and an activity to being a bunch of stuff. Yeah, it it goes from being a signifier of identity into this free floating stuff that can be imbued or infused with completely different meanings and therefore it renders whatever it was meaningless. Building on that, it's it's basically taking the surface of something without the context and where it originally came from and all of the history attached to it and the meaning of it to the people who created it, right? Yes and no, in that you can sometimes bring with it, with it the context and be like, oh, so, such and such, you know, this is where I get my inspiration from. But like where it gets dicey is like, this is where I get my inspiration from, but I'm not giving back to that community. Right. Because I have no reason to, because... I am the artist here. This is my work. Like, I am the original brain like, that, that brings, you know, to life all these, all, all these like, performances and, and this art. Like, this is mine, ultimately, because we have this, they have this approach towards art, which is very dependent on notions of private property. Mm-hmm. And because it's dependent on notions of private property, it's wrapped up with all these various laws that deal with private property. And in a book called Borrowed Power, which is on essays on cultural appropriations, there is actually a book that is an, an essay that discusses the legal discourse surrounding appropriation and why it's not a really good way to approach it. I want to bring in a very cheesy moment from Back to the Future just so that we can discuss how this kind of looks when we when we see it in mainstream science fiction. So this is a scene where main character, white guy Marty McFly, comes from the future and he plays a riff from Chuck Berry at a dance. Mm-hmm. And then we hear Chuck Berry's cousin responding to it. Chuck! Chuck! It's Marvin! Your cousin, Marvin Barry. You know that new sound you're looking for? Well, listen to this. So the thing that's hilarious and terrible about this clip is that it's basically white culture trying to claim that appropriation never happened because the way that rock and roll really evolved in the United States is that it was a black cultural form. It came out of the blues. It came out of black dance clubs. And then white people overheard it, people like Elvis and others, overheard it and were like, dude, it's the new sound. I'm going to sell it. But like in Back to the Future, it's actually a black person who's inspired by a white guy. And so it's like we get to have our cake and eat it, too. So what do you think of this as like kind of a moment in cultural appropriation? I feel like. That is the moment. So I also did um, whiteness studies as part of my PhD. Is this something that white people are always doing? (laughs) Well, yes. Okay. (laughs) Quick and dirty answer, yes. Okay, good. Uh, (laughs) 
to me, like this is a moment where you have what is essentially a black cultural history and the insistence of white bodies to insert themselves and make themselves the centerpiece of that which is not white because it's a habit of whiteness and Helen Young actually has got this really fun book on habits of whiteness in fantasy which informs my thinking on this where you have what is essentially like non-white history because it has so much cultural cachet and it has contributed so much to popular culture whiteness needs to appropriate this history for itself and therefore inserts a white body, even though it's clearly like tongue-in-cheek because it's back to the future and it's like time travel, haha. It's mm-hmm. clearly not real. But like the effect of that being that it reinforces the idea that only a white person could in- could have invented rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Only a white person could have however he brought his genius, like he he's the one to bring this art form, this cultural form into being in history. So how does this affect speculative fiction, particularly in terms of like people wanting to do a science fiction with like Asian folklore or Asian characters in it or, you know, white people wanting to like take African myths and turn them into a fantasy story or whatever? How does this specifically play out in science fiction? I think it plays out specifically in the back end of the publishing industry generally, where you can have... Say there are a dozen writers writing about the same African myth. Mm -hmm. Half of them are white and half of them are non-white. The chances, what are the chances of the non-white person being taken up versus the white person being published? Who is the one who's most likely to get noticed and who has to fight harder to get noticed? Because what happens is that when a cultural form has been filtered through a particular gaze, the gaze of the dominant culture, that is likely to be the form that's going to be most recognizable and most acceptable. So I had a friend who was trying to sell a manuscript and like she kept on getting all these revisions. Like she was writing, she's Nigerian Canadian and she was writing about stuff that happened specifically in her household because that she understands to be part of her identity as Nigerian. And every so often like she'd get back these edits being all like, can you take these things out? Because it's too weird. It's too like no one's going to understand what's going on in this scene. Um. And then later after she's done that, she gets another round of edits. Like, Can you make it a bit more African? Oh, right? Wow. <laughs> like those of us who are people of color, we end up having to edit our identities and the ways we express our identities so that it fits this, the, the, the um, very like white supremacist commercial sense of what will sell and what will be recognizable. And very often what is recognizable is low-key racist. But because (laughs) because it's like, you know, seen as like really novel and like no one's done it before, like it gets forgiven very easily. So I wanted to go back to a term that you used earlier, which was dominant culture, because I think we need to talk about that to really understand cultural appropriation and what we mean. So first, to introduce this, we're going to have a little clip from Star Trek. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. All right, so I brought that up because 
I think that there's often, when I talk to people about cultural appropriation, sometimes they get confused about how it works because they think it's just like what you were saying, like sharing. They're like, well, but like Japanese people borrowed from Disney tropes. And like, so that's exactly the same as like a white American author borrowing anime tropes. It's exactly the same thing. And But what the Borg show us in this clip, of course, is that when you are the dominant one, you demand assimilation and you're in a mm-hmm. different position than the little puny humans in their ship who are being <laughs> assimilated, right? Tell us a little bit about like what is a dominant culture And how do we recognize dominant culture when we see it? Dominant culture is what's surrounding us and also what is invisible because it's so ubiquitous. So here in the United States, dominant culture is very whitewashed rock and roll. It's like white Hollywood. And like, wasn't there a time period when Hollywood actors went to a very particular school to learn how to speak? The fact that as and this was an unth- a stat I remember from Unthinking Eurocentricism, but in 1992, Hollywood accounted for 80 percent of all cultural exports of film being circulated internationally. That is dominant culture, is that it's something that is everywhere and it permeates the environment so much to act otherwise, to behave otherwise, is to mark yourself as outsider and to invite any kind of violence onto yourself, whether that's in the form of discrimination or in the form of like a psychological violence as an ostracization or even physical violence because you you refuse to behave according to norms and standards of the dominant culture. So I'm from Malaysia, where the dominant culture is Malay. And everywhere you go, you see, and with, with the rising Arabization, like everywhere you go, you, you see like Arabic alphabets everywhere, because that's how we um, sometimes write Malay. At some point, like the Arabic alphabet was being taught in schools because, you know, even those of us who are non-Muslim were expected to be able to read it. It didn't take, thank God. It was actually really fun. Yeah, I I like a good Arab alphabet. (laughs) I'm pro. (laughs) But it also means that, you know, on Fridays, a lot of us who were non-Muslim felt that it was more appropriate. So we have two different uniforms, the pinafore and the bajkurong. It's got long sleeves and it's like that's the top layer and a layer of a, uh, of a long skirt underneath. And Fridays are when the Muslims have like the whole prayers. So because it's Friday prayers, there's going to be more Muslims than usual out on the road. We, Those of us who are non-Muslim feel the need to wear the bajikurong because it's more modest. Even though like the pinafore is a perfectly you know, acceptable article of school uniform. And that's actually very benign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a lot of us don't really mind that. But that does mean that, you know, our differences tend not to be as accepted. Like if we want to take time off for religious holidays, we actually have to have to bring in a letter saying that, you know, we need to have this day off and this is why I'm absent from school today. Mm-hmm. Right, which you guys don't even get here in the states. So I don't want, <laughs> well, I don't no, really I got to take uh, Jewish holidays off. Like if you got a, a note from your, I don't know what your parents, mm-hmm. they would like let you take a Jewish holiday off at my school, even though dominant culture mm-hmm. in the U.S. is definitely Christian. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I've been on a lot of panels lately at conventions about cultural appropriation and writing the other and everything. And, you know, it always seems to center the question of, like, the rights of the white author and, like, right. what whether we have the right to, yeah. to write something. And it doesn't kind of 
usually it doesn't get as much into the responsibilities mm-hmm. of like trying to be trying right. to do your best to promote understanding of other cultures and to mm-hmm. promote authors from those cultures. Right. And because that's the logic of private property, that, that legal framework of what private property is and what therefore we have a right to. This is, you know, as a writer, like this is now my private property to write as I please. Yeah. In my brain. My brain is my private property <laughs> and I can do whatever I please in it and, and, and share its its contents. And like the thing the question that always kind of it comes down to is like who is the best person to tell this particular story, especially at this particular moment? And people get really uncomfortable when you kind of put it that way. But, you know, for example, in a world where relatively few young adult fantasy authors are Asian, it's still like not in the US, it's still like a really you know, marginalized group in YA, who is the best person to tell a, an Asian story in YA? And is that different now than maybe hopefully it'll be 10 years from now? And how do you explain those questions to people about like the kind of own voices issue? I usually frame it in terms of representation and numbers. When was the last time you heard an Asian tell an Asian story out of all the reading that you do? And also, I think I tend not to end up in these conversations because I think a lot of people sense that I have no time for them and no patience for this. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about like that whole study where that study of how men perceive, how much talking men perceive that they do versus how much talking women do. If women take up more than 30% of the discourse in any given space, men immediately think, oh, well, the they talked all the time, even though it was really only 30%. And if you get to like, you know, 50%, like equal, like, you know, participation is like, they are taking over. And like Samuel Delaney mentions this in his early essay on racism in science fiction too. It's like, well, you know, while we're just only a few black authors, like just me and Octavia and a few others, like it'll be fine, but there will be a tipping point once we hit like 10, 15% of like, black authors like there will be pushback and that's what we're seeing right now is that pushback and that's kind of what i tend to fall back on to explain that why is it that there is pushback when people are speaking out about this why does it matter that you know you're not allowed to tell this story it's like sometimes you know you're not you're not the teacher if you're if you're not the teacher and you're not the expert you you need to learn how to sit and hush and let someone else do it because like it doesn't have to be about you all the time if it ain't about you don't make it about you <laughs> Speaking of which, I know that you've spent a lot of time studying steampunk and how it's related to cultural appropriation. So tell us a little bit about that as like a specific example of cultural appropriation. Wow. Okay. So back in 2010, when Diana Fo and I started presenting about multicultural steampunk and we were really trying to push the ideas like we need to have multiculturalism in steampunk because, you know, like at this point... we. The market was feel, starting to feel really oversaturated by like Victorian-based steampunk, and so we really wanted to advance this idea that you know yes, people of color belong in steampunk, and not only that, but like our own cultures and our own histories also are interesting enough to have like cool ray guns and and lots of airships because <laughs> that's why we do steampunk, right? It's not just uh, for white people anymore. It really is not just for <laughs> white people, but I mean like white people did it themselves by making it available to everything and and, and like. The Demanding that, you know, we accept this as as the common iconography. One of the things I noticed when we started doing that, I would go to a convention and there would be at least like one white person who was dressed up in 
some form of like Asian clothing, usually like corsets on kimonos, which doesn't really bother a lot of people. It bothers me because I think that's lazy. <laughs> <laughs> like I feel like you should do a bit more than just like substitute the corset for the OB. And also because in my research, I've done work on what the corset signifies and how that's tied up with colonial history. So I now I'm even more uncomfortable with it now that I understand why I'm uncomfortable with it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is what research does to you. I didn't notice more participation necessarily by people of color. It's like, huh, there's more multiracial, multicultural steampunk. There's a lot of people emailing me saying, will you please review my book because I've got a multicultural setting or I've got a multicultural character. And but like not necessarily more non-white creators on the scene. And those who were on the scene were often like alienated out. So like I had a friend who used her power regalia for her Native American mad scientist outfit. And she's like wandering the halls of a steampunk convention. And some guy says like, if you want to be Native American steampunk, like you got to have more feathers. Um, what? Because that's white supremacy in action is being able to tell minorities like what they cannot, can or cannot do with how they signify um, their own identities. And I just like, I wanted to understand like why in in the face of all this like push towards um, multiculturalism in steampunk, why were we still not seeing very many non-white people? Like, why do I feel so alienated by all this discourse around the encouragement towards multiculturalism? And it wasn't just because there were more white people being published for doing non-white steampunk, but also because the fan discourse was like really uncomfortable to see, mostly because the fan discourse treated culture as like commodities and objects that you know you can incorporate it into your steampunk, um, <laughs> as if steampunk was not what already had a form to itself and was not something that could be built up from certain other elements that aren't necessarily tied to Victoriana. So when this guy, white guy, says to an indigenous woman, like, all right, you got to have more feathers, like, that's a perfect example of, like, appropriation, basically. It's a white person Mm -hmm. in a white culture saying, I kind of own your culture, and I'm going to tell you how to do it. So what I'm wondering is, what is the word or action for the opposite, where people of color come into a steampunk environment and try to not be doing that? I mean, is there a word for, is it decolonization? Is it like, what is that? What is it when, if you were to really have participation from people of color in a meaningful way where there weren't white guys telling them what to do, like, what would that be called? It's definitely a process of decolonization because it's thinking through like, okay, what is it that makes this concept so Eurocentric and so white? How do I I just strip out all these elements that make it what's left behind. And how do I recover the parts of my identity that have been diminished by 19th and 20th century imperialism and colonialism? And this is really difficult because it's basically like it's one of the reasons why it's just you know, everyone does like Victorian um, steampunk all the time. Even people of color do ste- Victorian steampunk all the time. It's because it's easy. You, it's it's really really easy to pick up books on Victorian history. 
so many books on like Victorian fashions and British and American fashions. There's just so much of the ephemera basically has been recorded, has been kept for posterity, which has not been accorded to many marginalized communities. And so what ends up happening is we end up having to do this weird like cultural, psychological archaeology to recover that which we know very little of. Like I didn't realize just how little I knew of actual Malaysian history until I started writing Malaysian steampunk and started thinking through like what would what would race relations look like in Malaysia if if Brit- the British had not come in with their divide and conquer racist techniques. And I was like, I have no idea. I have no huh. idea what what those race relations would have looked like. I don't even know where to start, what archives to start looking into. I don't know who even to talk to because like, you know, I grew up in a middle class suburb. We don't think too much about this thing because we're kind of like busy trying to join the rat race of, of you know, capitalism. Assimilate. <laughs> you will be assimilated. Right. <laughs> and like, I know I'm not the only one when I edited the CSR is like, and I'm from Malaysia. I grew up with for an entire year of like Malaysian history in the school curriculum. And so I imagine it must be really, really difficult for like people of color here in the States who have to kind of like what further scraps do they get if I got scraps? Like, like what tatters and remnants, you know, are left for those in a, in this kind of environment? I've noticed, like, it doesn't matter, like, if we're in diaspora or whether we're in, like, the country that we are writing about. Like, we all tend to have the same kind of anxieties of, like, am I representing my country right? Am I speaking to, you know, this history of my ancestors, the, my ancestors' lives? Like, am I depicting them right or am I doing them an injustice in taking this thing and, and making it this fun little lark in the sky? Mm-hmm. Um, we end up having a lot of those anxieties. And yeah, and that's kind of like what I see to be the, the problems of, of cultural appropriation in in the steampunk culture industry is like it it rewards certain people over others. Mm-hmm. So what's the solution to cultural appropriation? What can white people in science fiction do and what can everybody do to like fight cultural appropriation and create more positive representation and inclusion? Easy one would be to end racism. <laughs> oh, okay, let's that do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. First, end right. racism. Then okay, end racism. Like, you don't have to worry about cultural appropriation anymore. Um, I like, and and I've had like people say like, you know, if I want to do this non-white thing in steampunk, what should I do? I'm like, well, you should bring ten friends of color into steampunk. And make sure they stay. <laughs> Bring them into the community and make sure that they see the value in it long enough for them to stay. That's what I think. But also, like, I feel what needs to happen is kind of like a system-wide awareness of the numbers involved of who gets to represent what. We always need more writers of color. We need, and it's not just like we need more writers of color, right? We, it's like everyone, like when I, whenever I read a racist text, for example, <laughs> I'm just like, wow. This was, A, written by an actual person, and then it was read and okayed by probably an agent who passed it on to an editor who was like, don't see a problem here. And it goes through like any number of levels, and no one who has the power to say, wow, this is not okay, says it, or it just keeps on you know, being passed around. And until, like, as in publishing, we say, you only need one yes. Um, <laughs> you only need one yes to get this racist text through. <laughs> and, 
But at the same time, like, you know, you, you feel like there needs to be an accountability process at every level of authority that goes into cultural production and awareness at those levels of authority of like, this is not okay. This is not the kind of representation. This is what community is this representation responsible for? And how do we pay respects to that community while still trying to turn a profit? Like, can, like do we have to profit off this racist representation? <laughs> right. So inst- so it sounds like the dominant culture needs to change. In the- yeah. And so basically to move from appropriating to maybe to like inclusion. So instead of publishing the white person talking about stuff, how about just publishing a person of color talking about stuff? Right. It's also about the sharing of power, the sharing of platforms, not just, you know, trying to get expertise and trying to accumulate expertise because sometimes expertise and knowledge is also treated as this commodification, just this commodified thing. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. It was so great to have you here. So, Jamie, how can people find out more about you? They can Google me. My name is J-A-Y-M-E-E-G-O-H because sometimes people get tripped up by that. They can also find me on Twitter, J-H-A-M-E-I-A. They can also find me on Tumblr sometimes, also J-H-A-M-E-I-A. I do have a blogspot and a WordPress, also usernames J-H-A-M-E-I-A. Um, they have my bibliographies of the work I've done and also other writings I've done on, on cultural appropriation and multiculturalism. I also have a blog called Silver Goggles. That's my post-colonial steampunk blog. Yay. Where I've done a lot of like that was the basis for my dissertation or my eventual dissertation, and so people can go back and, and and read through the archives there because I don't think I'll be taking down that archive anytime soon. That's cool. mostly how people can find me, and we'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes. Yay! Thank awesome. you so much. Yay! Yay. Now we have a little segment called Research Hole. <laughs> so, Charlie, why don't you start us off? What research hole did you fall into recently? So I got obsessed with researching the history of Mandrake the Magician, who <laughs> some people claim is the first comic book superhero. He debuted in 1934 before – like Superman was 1938, I think. And he was in newspaper comic strips and comic books. And he's basically like a magician with like a really pencil-thin mustache and a tuxedo and a red cape and a top hat. That's like how who, I dress all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really is. Yeah, no, and he's, he's super dapper. And he sometimes has actual magical powers, sometimes not. But he has hypnotic powers. He can cause people to like see illusions whatever he wants them to see and he can confuse people and he goes around with like his African sidekick Lothar who is probably pretty problematic and also his girlfriend Princess Narda of Cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Princess Narda is like the best name ever. <laughs> and he goes around fighting bad guys including his own evil twin brother and his own evil half brother and like basically other various evil members of his family. Oh, really? And it's he all fights in aliens. The he goes to other planets. He, like, saves 
Earth a whole bunch of times. He occasionally joins up with The Phantom, who was also created by the same guy, Lee Falk. And they were huge back during the Great Depression. There was like a huge Mandrake the Magician craze. There was a radio serial for a long time. There was a, a film serial that lasted about 12 episodes. And, you know, Mandrake the Magician and, and the Phantom were both like huge cultural icons in the era pretty much before Superman and Batman, but they still continue to be popular after Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman came along. And there have been various attempts to revive and bring back Mandrake the Magician. The newspaper comics, I guess, have never stopped, and Lee Falk kept writing them up until his death in 1999. So for like 60 years, he was writing Mandrake the Magician comics. But they're still going. There's been a variety of artists working on them. And in 2016, Sasha Baron Cohen, best known for Ali G and like Borat, was going to star in a Mandrake the Magician movie. And he said in part it was because his confrontational style of comedy was no longer working as well as it had used to. And obviously, we know how that turned out. There's no Mandrake the Magician movie. And instead, Sasha Baron Cohen is basically back to doing his old stuff. But so, yeah, he just did a terrible new series. So. so we could have had a Mandrake the Magician movie to possibly watch while very stoned, but we didn't. Yeah. Well, I'm really sad about that. I wish I were in the alternate history where, like, Sasha Baron Cohen, who I love, did Mandrake the Magician instead of his new series for, I think it was Showtime. It was terrible. I'm sorry if you liked it, but no, it was bad. So what have you been obsessed with researching? I fell into a research hole after reading a paper in Science Advances, because that's the kind of thing I read, about pre-Clovis technology. So, yeah, pretty exciting. Um, In the United States and throughout the Americas, humans arrived on these continents many thousands of years ago. And it's obviously been a huge debate among archaeologists. When did people arrive? How did they arrive? The old idea was that people walked on a land bridge between Asia and the Americas, and that's how they got here. That's pretty much now not really the main hypothesis. Most people believe that the earliest people who came to the Americas came by boat from Asia and came down the coast. And this new paper is looking at some of those people who probably came down the coast because they couldn't have come by land bridge because they were here 15,000 years ago before all of the ice uh, melted that would have prevented them from coming on the land bridge. So they had to have come by boat. And what they left behind was just thousands and thousands of examples of what are called projectile points. This is an archaeology term for basically the pointy thing that you put on the end of a stick. Not sure if it's a spear or an arrow, so we just call it a projectile point. It This was all discovered in Texas uh, near a place called Buttermilk Creek, where there have been a ton of discoveries of really ancient humans in the Americas because, you know, living next to a creek is kind of a good thing. So what was cool about this was I learned that one of the most common kinds of projectile points in the Americas about 13,000 years ago is called Clovis, and it just describes a certain kind of point. But these kinds of projectile points were pre-Clovis. They didn't really look like Clovis points. And so the exciting thing is there was a whole culture that was making these different type of projectile points before the Clovis people. And maybe those are the ancestors of the Clovis people who are themselves the ancestors of Native Americans. Or maybe it was a totally different group that came separate from the people that were the Clovis people making these Clovis points. So the whole 
story that I just told you about confusing migrations and different kinds of toolkits is really about how scientists are now accepting the idea that the Americas were populated by people who came in different migrations, different groups of people. Um, it was a diverse group that came and conquered or at least settled these continents. Some came by land, some came by sea. They had different cultural beliefs. They had different technologies. And they all wound up here. And it would have been a pretty interesting time to be around. I, I would have definitely visited 15,000 years ago here hung out with some megafauna. What about you? Would let's you come? fire up the time machine. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's... We have to be able to come back, though, because I really <sighs> I love antibiotics. I'm like yeah, super into them. Could, you know, we just bring some antibiotics with us, give some to the megafauna. Maybe it'll help the megafauna survive so Aww. they'll still be around in 2018. Mastodon has some Aww. penicillin. Give, give the mastodon some penicillin. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. We are, as always, our opinions are correct. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. You can follow us by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher. You can just go to our website at ouropinionsarecorrect.com. And many people help make this show awesome, including you if you're supporting us on Patreon, but also Chris Palmer writes the music. And Veronica Simonetti is our amazing producer and editor who makes it all happen. Thanks again, and see you in a fortnight.